like to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Over the last two messages we have given in Romans chapter 3 verses 21 to 26, we have seen how the Apostle Paul has spoken of the cross of Jesus Christ and how this has impacted those who believe. For instance, in that passage, as we went over it together, Paul has spoken of the righteousness of God, the redemption of God, the propitiation of God, and the vindication of God. Summing those up, John Stott writes provocatively, Through the sin-bearing, substitutionary death of His Son, God has propitiated His own wrath in such a way as to redeem and justify us, and at the same time demonstrate His justice. We can only marvel at the wisdom, holiness, love, and mercy of God and fall down before Him in humble worship. The cross should be enough to break the hardest heart and melt the iciest. When I read that, I asked myself the question, yes, does not indeed this glorious good news that God has offered to the world be enough to humble us? to break the hardest heart and to melt the iciest heart. But why does, in fact, this response not occur within the heart of all mankind? The answer, of course, is pride. Pride. It is pride which causes man to be thoroughly blinded to the reality of what God has done in Christ. What an insidious thing that pride is in the heart of man. C.S. Lewis, who was a great writer, not a thoroughgoing evangelical, but nevertheless gave us an insightful description about man's pride. He wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, these words, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. I do not think that I have heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more conscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. 
Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. The Christians are right. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people. But pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. In God, you come up against something which is, in every respect, immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. That raises a terrible question. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear themselves very religious? I'm afraid it means they are worshiping an imaginary God. They theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God, but are really at all, all the time imagining how He approves of them and thinks them far better than ordinary people. That is, they pay a penny worth of imaginary humility to Him and get out of it a pound's worth of pride towards their fellow men. I suppose it was of those people Christ was thinking when He said that some would preach about Him and cast out devils in His name only to be told at the end of the world that He had never known them. And any of us may at any moment be in this death trap. Luckily, we have a test. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted upon not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. Now, when you hear this description of man's pride, you can't help but think, I'm sure, of those the Apostle Paul indicted here in Romans 3. Listen to what he writes in Romans 3, verses 27 to 31. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Beloved, I believe that within these three separate questions posed here by the Apostle Paul, you have the issue of pride. Pride lurking for control in the background. And in some cases, exhibiting itself right up front. And within each of these questions, there is the inherent problem of man's prideful response to who God is and what He has done for mankind.
We could use these three questions as our outline this morning, and we shall do that. We could call these three series of questions that Paul poses as three distinct but interrelated manifestations of man's pride. They are distinct, but they are interrelated questions in which Paul, once again, using this diatribal style or diatribal style, if you will, anticipates from his Jewish opponents. And here are those three questions. Number one, number one, can the Jews rightly boast in their obedience to the law of God? Can the Jews rightly boast in their obedience to the law of God? Paul gives an answer to that in verses 27 and 28. Can the Jews rightly boast in their obedience to the law of God? He'll give us the answer to that question. Secondly, can the Jews claim an exclusive justification by God? Can the Jews claim an exclusive justification by God as a race of people? Paul gives us that answer in verses 29 and 30. And thirdly and lastly, is faith, uh, excuse me, if faith is the key to a relationship with God, is the law of God then forever abolished? If he says not by law but by faith, does that mean then that law is abolished? And he answers that question in verse 31. Let's take the first one. Number one, I'll state it like this, pride's manifestation question number one. Pride manifestation question number one. Can the Jews rightly boast in their obedience to the law of God? Notice what he says in verses 27 and 28. Then what becomes of our boasting? Paul anticipating in this diatribe uh, an objector, an interlocutor, an opposing person. Then what becomes of our boasting, this person might say? Paul says, it is excluded. By what kind of law, they might say? By a law of works? He says, no. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That's the first question. It's the first manifestation in this particular paragraph of the pride of man lurking underneath the surface. And even though this paragraph is a different context than what Paul has said in verses 21 to 26, it does, of course, relate to what Paul has just said in verses 21 to 26. If God has worked by His own initiative to justify us, as the choir sang, it's a justification as a gift of grace. If God has done that by a gift, if He's redeemed us, if we are propitiated, that is, satisfied by the death of Jesus Christ, God has been, so that His wrath against sin is averted, can the Jews, could anyone for that matter, rightly boast in their obedience to the law of God? That's His question. You remember, if you look back at chapter 2, verse 12, 
and 13 that Paul has said that it isn't the Jews' mere reception of the Mosaic law which brings God's justification to sinners, but the actual doing of the law of God. But let's say that the Jews even go beyond the mere reception of the law. They had been entrusted, Paul says, with the oracles of God. They, they received the law of God. But let's just go beyond their mere reception of the law of God to their actual boast of having obeyed God's holy law. There were many of them, many of those Jews in Paul's day. Paul was one of them. He was a zealous Pharisee. It says in Galatians 1, I, I was moving beyond all of my countrymen. I was going beyond all of them in my zealousness for the law. There were myriads of Jews, maybe not all of them, but certainly some of them and maybe all of the Pharisees themselves, that little strict sect of Judaism that were so fastidious about obeying the law of God, certainly they were those, like Paul, who gloried in their obedience to the law of God as doing exactly what God wanted them to do. And thereby, in the end, in the apocalypse, beginning now and moving through until glory, surely God would reward our obedience. Surely God would do that. He's commanded us to obey it. And when we obey it, surely God will reward that obedience. The question that Paul, of course, has been endeavoring to answer here is, will this obedience then satisfy the demands of God's justice? And what has been his answer? No. No, not at all. Why? Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. That's a... That's a legal term that's, that speaks of putting your, your hand over your mouth so that there's nothing more to say. You have no more excuse. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Why? Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I keep trying to obey, I keep trying to obey, I keep trying to obey the law of God, and what is the result? I have a forever awakening knowledge of my sin, that I can't do it, that my mouth is stopped, and I, as a faithful Jew, like the whole world, is held accountable to God. I can't do it. It's not possible. I love the law. I want to obey the law. But when I do that, what conjures up in my mind, what comes to the surface, is the idea that the law shows me my sin. It's ever before me. No Jewish person individually, nor the Jews collectively, could claim God's divine satisfaction over their sin dilemma. No one. Either by merely receiving the law as those who had received it from Moses on Mount Sinai, or boast that they had indeed kept the law. So it's not the idea that you can just receive it, you're in because you're a Jew, and therefore you have the law and the other nations don't. Nor could you pridefully say, I've kept the law. 
We'll look at that in a moment in Luke 18 with the rich young ruler. You can't say either of those. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3 that he had kept the law. That's what he said about his unregenerate condition. That as to the law, I was found what? Blameless. Blameless. And there no doubt were many others within Judaism who would have said the same thing. Not only have we heard God's law, but we are absolutely intent on keeping God's law. Paul was one of those. He was that zealous Pharisee, fastidiously obeying whatever the law demanded, which within the heart of man, including even the Apostle Paul, manifested ultimately nothing but what? Pride. Pride. C.S. Lewis would say, that kind of desire, which brings on an ugly competition between people, and it even makes us think we could ultimately boast about ourselves and our obedience to God, who we know knows our heart. He knows how far short we fall. He knows that, and we know that, and yet we will actually at times even boast to Him about how much we're doing what He wants. And can you imagine someone ultimately standing before God, a Jew or anybody else, and on the basis of their own obedience to the law of God, as failed as that is, and they would say, God, I stand before you and you must reward me now with eternal life, with the kingdom, with blessing because of my obedience to the law of God? That's unmitigated pride. Listen to Lewis again. If you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or, show their own, or, or shove their own oar in or patronize me or show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It is because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I am so annoyed at someone else being the big noise. You've met those people. Two of a trade never agree. Now what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive is competition by its very nature, while the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. That is why I say that pride is essentially competitive in a way that other vices are not. Then he gives an example. The sexual impulse may drive two men into competition if they both want the same girl. But that is only by accident. They might just as likely have wanted two different girls. But a proud man will take your girl from you, not because he wants her, but just to prove to himself that he is a better man than you. 
Greed may drive men into competition if there is not enough to go round. But the proud man, even when he's got more than he can possibly want, will try to get still more just to assert his power. Is that not so? Nearly all those evils in the world which people put down to greed or selfishness are really far more the result of pride. And this is precisely what I think the Apostle Paul is driving toward here in Romans 3.27. The Jews were in competition with the Gentiles. And because of the Jews' pride of place, chosen by God, entrusted with the oracles of God, they had been convinced by their unmitigated pride that they could obey the law of God and therefore stand before Him in righteousness and in holiness while at the same time have nothing but contempt for the Gentiles. That's what's going on here. That's, that's what we see. In fact, turn over in your Bibles to Luke 18, and I'll show you this in two different passages. Luke 18. You have one, of course, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke 18.9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. There you have it. They, they were trusting in themselves that they were righteous. Read in their pride. Pride. Now, read in the next phrase, competition pride. And treated others with contempt. You see? Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Read contempt there as well. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Is Jesus trying to show us a contrast here? And by the way, there's no, there's no doubt that he was doing these things, this Pharisee, fasting twice a week, giving tithes of all that he'd received. There's nothing in the text that suggests that he wasn't doing that. He was doing that because he was trusting in himself that he was righteous. But the tax collector was not. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says by his own lips, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, declared not guilty rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the text on pride. So is Romans 3. You're going to boast about the law? You're going to boast that in and of yourself you're righteous? No, you're going to be humbled. Look at verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. Another certain one who was trusting in himself that he was righteous. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Where was he hitting him? Right in the money bags. Right in the sin. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus said, How sad. And what was his pride? It was competition pride. Because if I give my money away, then that means somebody's going to have more money than I do. And I can't have that. So what does Paul say in Romans 3.27? 
What's his answer to these who are boasting? It is excluded. Excluded. Shut out. Literally. Shut off. No go. Why? Look at verse 19 again of chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. The Jews were under the law. And so, because of their sin that he describes in verses 9 to 18, their sin has shut up their mouth, shut it off, or should have. No one can legitimately boast that they can keep the law and also that others are shut out if they're of a different race or ethnic background and that they should be viewed with contempt because they don't follow the law. The Jews say they're pagan nations. You're going to bless them? You're going to reward them? They don't have the law of God. We do. And that was Paul's point right in chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. You boast about what you've received, but I'm telling you, even the Gentiles have a law. It's a law written in their heart that says this is right and this is wrong. They sometimes even follow the law themselves. But not salvation. Because salvation is not following the law. Because all who are under the law and all who have a law unto themselves, like the Gentiles, are guilty before God, and they will perish. That's what he says in chapter 2. That's his point. The Jews cannot claim that they have an automatic in with God simply because they've received God's law, and the Gentiles can't claim that they're all right with God if they're supposing they're fully and completely following the law that they've been given, the law of right and wrong written on their hearts. He says both of them are excluded. All human boasting is excluded. Why? Because it's all so much pride. That's what it is. It's, it's pride. Boastful pride. Boastful arrogance. Isn't that exactly what Paul's been saying from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to here? This is man. This is the depravity of man. Totally filled with themselves. So much so that he says in Romans 3, 10, there is none righteous, no, not one, even on the entire globe. You know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. This is why this is excluded. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one may what? Boast. Now, Paul asks a very provocative question here in Romans 3.27 about boasting before God. And I've shown you that. But he also goes on to answer his own question of how then a person could be right with God. Because I assume, like they, I would say, well, if it isn't myself, if it isn't my own doing, then how can I be saved? How can I be right with God? Who, who, who are the true people of God then? Paul answers that question. Look at Romans 3.27 again. Paul, if I can't boast about endeavoring to keep God's holy law, then how can I be in a right relationship with God? Here's his answer. By what kind of law? By law of works? 
No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You see what he's asserting? If you're going to tell me, Jews, that a man could be justified, declared righteous by God by a law of works, I must emphatically say, no! Works of the law, he says, will damn you because you can't keep them perfectly or completely. That's the standard. You must obey God's law with utter perfection in order to stand righteously before God. Can you imagine the pride of standing before God and said, I I followed every one of your laws every single time and for every right reason and motivation. It's not going to happen. And the shock, the absolute shock of untold millions from the beginning of time till I'm speaking now who have attempted that very thing. No. Can't do it. And even if the Jews had understood their Old Testament and not have been blind, it would have showed them that this was impossible to do. One day, however, the Old Testament says Messiah will come. And what will Messiah do? He'll be the faithful Israelite. Every single other Jew, every single other Israelite was not faithful and God looked upon Christ as the faithful Israelite of whom, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31, two believers, he says this, Christ is our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's who we're looking to. And that's why he says in verse 31, Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Don't boast in yourself. Don't boast in your works. Don't boast in what you're doing. Boast in the Lord because He is our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, that in Jesus Christ is our yes and amen. It's all in Christ. You want to boast? Boast in Christ because in Christ is our yes and our amen. The true one, truly, He is the one who has come to live a sacrificial life and death and even greater and more emphatic would Paul's answer be to that yes, not a no. Yes in Christ. Boasting? No! In Christ, yes. That's the right answer. You stand before God one day and you will give an account for your life and if your answer is not, I'm robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you try to come before God on the basis of your own works, He will say no. But if you say, I'm in Christ, He will say yes. And if it is in our works... How are we right with God? He tells us. Look at the verse. Verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That's why Martin Luther's translation in his German Bible says, 
For we hold that one is justified by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. That's legitimate. He understood the very context of this. It is not by works. No one can boast. God will give us an answer, and His answer is that we are justified by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. It is faith alone in the person of Jesus Christ and the work He accomplished on the cross. This is the way I can be justified, declared righteous by the righteous judge. Any other way, Jesus Himself said, is the way of a thief and a robber. Can't come in that way. I'm going to boast in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not in my own righteousness. And God has promised by His character and by His Word, that all sin will be justly punished. That, however, leaves me in a hopeless state because He's told me in chapter 1, 2, and now 3 that I am a sinner, depraved, unable to respond, spiritually blind eyes. I can't respond to any spiritual stimuli. What do I do? How do I respond? What is my hope? I can't save myself foolishly trying to convince myself that I have enough willpower to do a sufficient amount of works so that I would ultimately be acceptable with God. He says, no, it won't be that. It can't be that. Never, ever. I must place my faith firmly and squarely in Christ alone. Only then will I be justified in God's sight. What a, what a monumental verse, Romans 3.28. Jesus was teaching a crowd. And in John 6, 28, the crowd asked Jesus, what, what, what must we do to be doing the works of God? It's a similar question. Boasting? Boasting in my good deeds? He said, he answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. That's the work. If you want to do a work, believe. Faith works. Works don't work. Faith works. Our faith works precisely because we believe not in ourselves, not even in our faith, but in God through Christ. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that He is the one in whom is the hope of your eternal life? Oh, you must. Because if you don't have that, you will one day be standing before God and He will inquire of you as to how you can attain eternal life and your answer cannot be in any sense anything you have done. No is that answer. Yes is the answer in Christ. I want you to bow your heads with me. And I challenge you before we partake of the Lord's Supper not to make your boast in anything other than Jesus Christ. Through Him to God the Father. Don't trust in your own human boasts.
they will garner you nothing but contempt before God. I would encourage you to pray a prayer like the truth that Paul spoke of in Philippians 3. Whatever gain I had, that is through his own works of the law, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You can communicate that even to God, even right now. Whatever I thought I had, God, through my own works, through my own boasting, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And how do you gain Christ? To be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Oh, that is your boast. Your boast is in Christ and what He has done, not what you have done. Not even in your faith. Faith is just an instrument. It's a channel that brings you to Christ. I don't boast in anything save the cross of Christ. My dear friends, if you have done that, either this morning or at some time past, I rejoice and invite you to partake of the Lord's Supper with me. You don't have to be a member of the Bible Church of Little Rock. If you know Christ, if you are trusting only in Christ, boasting in the Lord through Christ, you can partake together. But if you are not, I pray that God will even this day open your eyes and show you what would be the tragedy of all tragedies to stand before God and give an account for your life and to speak even infinitesimally of something that you've done. Even the smallest amount is excluded. Boast in Christ alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone. Father, we pray that as we partake now of this, your supper, you will challenge us as believers to rejoice, to rejoice that we don't have to stand before you, Father, with a righteousness of our own derived through the works of the law, but by virtue of our faith in Christ, our trust, our reliance upon Him. I give my soul to Him, and He gives me His righteousness. May we rejoice in this supper. In Christ's name, amen.